Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you have any questions for our guests, there are many ways you can contact the show. You can post a question on our wall on Facebook, Skype us, send us a tweet on Twitter to at The Organic View, or you can contact me directly at June Stoyer. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today my guest is Alice Fearing, and her book is called Naked Wine, Letting Grapes Do What Comes Naturally. Most people take for granted that when they select a wine, the ingredients are going to be pure and natural. However, as most conscious consumers know, this is not the case. There are 200 ingredients on the list of government-approved additives for wine. However, unlike food, wine manufacturers are not required to list their ingredients, which can include animal proteins, oak chips, sulfurs, yeasts, enzymes, preservatives, and what's called Mega Purple, which is a brand of highly concentrated wine color, on the side label. This renders most consumers to be clueless about what exactly is in their wine and used to produce it. In the book Naked Wine, wine expert Alice Faring explores these very issues as she discusses the process of natural winemaking. She also explains some key questions that most consumers are confused about, such as what is the actual difference between, quote, natural and organic wine? And what's the connection between the natural food and the natural wine movement? When did winemaking actually stop being an art and become an industry? And how much influence does big business really have in the wine world? So I would like to welcome to the show Alice Fearing. Good afternoon, Alice, and welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Alice. Are you still with us? Hi there. Sorry. Technology at its finest. Welcome to the organic view. Uh, Alice, I mean, your book was hysterical. I loved all the humor that you injected into the book. And also, I have to admit, um, I thought I knew a few things about wine, but after reading your book, I realized that, you know something, um, there's so much to learn. And I don't think, uh, (laughs) I think the experience that you share with your readers is just amazing, but you also have a lot of practical knowledge that you share as far as the whole winemaking process. Uh, now, one of the questions that I had was, how come you didn't make your or start making your own wine or learn how to make your own wine a long time ago? Well, you know, I really had no interest in it. It was only on a dare that I I ended up making my own wine. I for years, I always say that what I'm really interested in is telling other people's stories. And as I indicated in the book, unless I'm going to be growing my own grapes, I really have no interest in making my own wine. I have no interest in being an afternoon or a, a, just um, you know a, a second career kind of winemaker where I purchase grapes. I think that the important thing about making wine and most of the wines that I drink the same hands work the vineyards as make the wine. It makes a totally complete process. And so I'm happy to buy those wines and to support those people. Meanwhile, I'm a writer, and I can't afford to buy land, so there you go. <laughs> it's very interesting, especially how wine has evolved. Uh, I see around the New York area especially there are so many places that actually sell grapes where you can make your own wine. And, um, you know, for people that want to experiment and learn, uh, I think it's always best to either take some type of a class or, you know, if you are that capable and you can teach yourself, I highly recommend it. 
Um, unfortunately, my attempts have not been great. Um, I've I've learned that I am great at making vinegar, but that's about as far as I go. Well, I think that's where a little bit of um, chemistry is needed, or at least enough knowledge to know the dangers. And wine making is actually really simple as long as you keep it small, and as long as you work extremely clean. And by clean, not antiseptic, but just clean. Keep things away. My grandfather's wine always turned to vinegar, mostly, let's say, one out of five, but he made it in the basement right next to the oil burner. That's not clean. <laughs> yeah, and, well, many people from the old country, that was very typical. I mean, you just use, utilize whatever space you had, and I think uh, the knowledge that we've obtained uh, about just different uh, practices regarding health and being sanitary really do matter. Uh, so that is a really good point. Uh, just out of curiosity, uh, how hard was it to make wine according to your standards? Uh, extremely easy. <laughs> Extre it couldn't be easier. <laughs> you know, there is, um, as a matter of fact, I just got back from the country of Georgia where there seems to be a whole country of people making wine this way with absolutely as little intervention as possible. And really, given it left to its own devices, wine will give it, give it a pot, you know, crush it up, watch it, it will make itself. You just have to, as a friend says, it's controlled, it's controlled spoilage. You just have to watch out. So what you can really do is crush it, put it, you know, in a clean... Uh, uh, container, make sure that the temperature doesn't get too hot, and watch over it, and it'll start doing itself. So w what is really difficult is when you get into flavor control, mm. and which is something I'm not interested in doing. But I think that wine making has become so popular, all the tools and the ingredients is because basically it's an incredibly boring process. Now, in your book, Naked Wine, you talk about your own experience making wine. How did you become such a wine connoisseur? Oh, total by accident. Um, I, first of all, I was brought up in a household that had no drinking taboo. In fact, I was brought up um, on Manischewitz when I was still in diapers, I think. <laughs> on Friday night and Saturday afternoon and so that was a once a week experience or a twice a week experience when I moved to Boston to go to graduate school I already had an interest in smelling things and oddly enough I think that when I stopped eating meat when I was 16 all of a sudden the world of food blossomed and I became intensely aware and curious in, in food and in and in wine as a part of that. So that was all part and parcel. So I moved up to Boston. A friend was in the wine industry. We had wine tastings at our apartment. I had no interest in learning about wine, but I took advantage of the situation, and I developed a speed tasting uh, methodology. So I would get to the wine I liked before anybody else did, so I had more of it. I mean, it was purely selfish. <laughs> and at the end of two years, I'd look at a wine list and go, oh, I think I know something. And then all of a sudden, drinking out of paper cups weren't it. You know, that didn't cut it for me. And all this stuff happened. All of a sudden, I started buying books and studying and being more active. And so my knowledge is completely, like almost all of my knowledge, is completely, you know, in the field and completely self-taught. Yeah, completely self-taught. And my knowledge really kicked up a notch, more than a notch. It really accelerated at the point in 1999-2000 when I started spending a lot of time in the vineyards. And I also started writing about what it is, for lack of better term, naturally made wines. Now, I'm just curious. While you were going through that process about learning about wines and what you preferred, why you preferred it, so on and so forth, how did you how did you get along with other people your own age? Did they kind of view you as oh, you know, 
she is a total snob when it comes to wine. You can't go out to dinner with her because you're never going to find a bottle that she's going to like. Uh, it's just ridiculous. Do you ever have any type of experience like that? Uh, there, actually, I had one. Ter- well, yeah, there, there are some people who are, like view me as a total pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> they can drink anything in the world, and even some of them are, are other wine writers. And I'm like, there's nothing for me to drink here. And there was one time I did get into trouble with an extremely dear friend because I unwittingly I felt rather insulted by my attitude towards certain champagne. And I, I, that was a big <laughs> lesson learned, and I have to try to be a little bit less like, oh, I can't drink that. <laughs> I can relate. Um, it's uh, something that I also had to endure, but it's just interesting when I speak to people that have very particular taste in food, and you know, there's nothing wrong with being demanding, especially when it comes to appeasing your own um, standards and, and what you what you feel is suitable for your own um, for your own needs. And it's just interesting when you speak to people that really know their stuff, what they go through, especially when they're dining out with friends or just trying to socialize. And um, I'm sure that <laughs> I'm sure it. You can never go wrong going out to dinner with you to a restaurant, and anyone that you pick is always going to be the perfect wine for the meal. Well, I I hope that, especially because <laughs> you know even I get. Stage fright. Oh, my God, there's so much writing on this. They want me to pick the wine. What if they don't like it? But usually I do okay. In fact, friends all around the world, when they're out to dinner, all of a sudden I get a text. I'm at such and such restaurant. It could be like in Norway. It could be in France. It could be in Italy. Here's the wine list. What do I pick? <laughs> oh, boy, like you're, you're the help desk when it comes to wine for the world. That's okay. got to be <laughs> – hope they're paying you well. <laughs> Uh, now, I have, a cur- uh, I have another question for you that pertains to something that you wrote in the earlier part of the book. You quoted a man who made a comment that he, he, he said, I wonder if the modern taste for sweet wine is linked to the love of soda. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, and it's something that I often do think about, and it makes sense if you're if you're brought up on certain fast foods, on certain sweet, a sweet palate, uh, you'll be looking for those flavors in wine as well. And I always had a more savory palate. So, and as I think I wrote, I rejected soda very early on in life. It, it makes perfect sense because, I mean, I, I think when you are accustomed to heavily processed foods, uh, especially foods that have all sorts of additives and preservatives, you don't really taste real food. You're basically tasting something that, for the most part, is a laboratory experiment that's successful. Mm-hmm. And uh, a little later on, you talked about how uh, organic farming uh, was only an issue basically because of the fact that um, the run-in that the industry had with all of these different food manufacturers that were using all sorts of chemicals and additives uh, that would make the consumer think twice about what they're actually eating. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting, um, this coming weekend, there is the Right to Know March, which they're trying to, a, a large uh, group that are in the organic industry are trying to uh, get people to understand that uh, they should know what's on the label. And it pertains to all foods. And as Americans, we really should know what's in our food, and especially what's in our wine. And I, I think most people really have no idea. Most people don't have any idea. And the um, the ATF who's in charge of labeling seems to be very, very, very against any sort of ingredient list on a wine label, they seem to believe that it's not possible. It's quite interesting that it is not possible to be able to put grapes alone on a label. It's as if it needs some of some or all of the 200 approved additives that you can put into a wine. It's really quite remarkable. What are some of the 
uh, U.S. approved additives that you found were most shocking? Well, let's see, most shocking. Well, well, I do have to predicate it by saying none of them are terribly noxious, or at least proven to be noxious. But I, some of them uh, are used for convenience sake, sloppy winemaking. One of them is DMDC, which is commonly known as a Velcrin, and it is dimethyl dicarbonate. This is carcinogenic to the handler. It is poisonous to the handler, and it is uh, basically it is a stabilization chemical added to wine that is totally unnecessary. It's also used to remove to make sure you don't have any aromas that are considered off aromas, such as Britannomyces, which in little bits can actually be flavor enhancing. So that's one of the more noxious ones that are allowed. But one that I absolutely hate is gum arabic. Now, why would you put gum arabic in your wine? Because you want a chewier um, mouthfeel. Uh, that's garbage. I mean, the nature isn't giving that to us. I want to see what nature does every year and what the winemaker does. I, I don't need a wine with mouthfeel. It's interesting if I see what nature does. It's not interesting if I see what man does. So that's one of them. There are a slew of tannins that are able to be added. And wine has plenty of, tan- plenty of tannin, but the idea of adding tannin, which are come in a powdered form, so you could do oak, chestnut, any manner of wood tannin, and of course grape tannin. The whole idea of adding mega purple, which is really just mm. concentrate. Um, so these aren't necessarily harmful, though I do have my doubts about tannin. And from what I can see, there are no studies on effect of added tannin. Now people do have tannin allergies to tea, coffee, etc. Like why not? powder tannins, I have no idea how they're processed. I have a feeling most of the bad rap that sulfur gets Mm -hmm. really belongs to tannin, and it is widespread. Why is it used for both texture, color, improved color? Big deal. It's interesting that there are so, I mean, I had no idea that there were that many approved additives, Mm -hmm. Uh, and you also referenced them in, towards the back of your book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lot of them are repetitive, not repetitive, but just in genre. So within those 200 are a huge assortment of approved enzymes that you can add. Needed, just makes your winemaking easier, and it's already an easy process. But these are, the criminal thing is that these are used in small boutique wines as well as large industrially made wines. So when you think you're spending $40 or $50 for a bottle of wine and think you're getting a real you know, boutique kind of winery, you may not be. Yeah, it it makes you really think twice about the type of wine that you purchase, where it's produced, and also what the people who are producing it are being subjected to. I mean, it's inhumane to consciously purchase a wine in which the people working at that winery are being subjected to all sorts of chemicals that are harmful to their own body just so that you can enjoy that glass of wine. Yeah, there are plenty of winemakers who have decided to go organic because they just couldn't inflict that on their on their families. They live near the winery. Uh, you know, there's, uh, and there, <laughs> I remember being out Long Island and seeing a hazmat suit in the, in the winery and really pretty much like Wow. Snapping pictures like, well, I had never seen that before. Just out of curiosity, um, I'm afraid to ask, but what what is your opinion of the Long Island wines? Mm. <laughs> Especially since you're a New Yorker, have to ask. Okay. Uh, I believe very strongly in that all regions can make a nice country wine, a nice drinkable country wine. I have a great issue with some regions that insist on making a 
world-class one. I don't even know what that means, but that usually means expensive, and it usually means that, oh, we're making really phenomenal wines out here, and we're, you know, we can be on the same level as any of the great wine industries or countries. And, you know, I, I think that think that Long Island does itself a service and it should sing within its range and make a nice country wine that's affordable so I can get behind the drink local. At the prices that most of them charge, I can't get behind them. And, and there are very few organic wineries out there. Yeah. Very few. Well, I know that um, you prefer the... Do you still prefer the French wines? Yes. I do, but uh, America is coming around. I am very happy to see it. Say, I was out in California um, in June, uh, well, in June and in August. But actually, in August, just a few weeks ago. Funny how time flies. <laughs> and I spent two nights drinking California wines all night, not having a problem. Actually, being very happy. I could not have said this even three or four years ago. So things are coming around. People are working more naturally and it's pretty exciting actually but I do prefer their French wines for affordability and naturalness what I like about your writing is that you're very practical I mean you're very particular but you're practical and you're also optimistic you give you give people the opportunity to improve it's not just you know this is it this is the final final word and that's the end and uh, for that, uh, I, I think it's something that's really admirable when uh, people are reading uh, reviews and just information, uh, especially the type of information that you put out there to the general public. I mean, um, you're a very accomplished writer and obviously a wine expert. Um, just out of curiosity, uh, how, what is it like, rather, to be a female and do what you do? Hmm. <laughs> that is a good question. That is a really good question. Uh, I, um, well, what is it like? I think that since my books have come out, it's been a little bit more difficult. And I obviously am stepping on some very big toes because most of the wine industry is male-driven, money-driven, industry-driven, and... Convenience-driven. I would think, especially yeah. since they're using many of these additives yeah. because it's just easier. Yes, yes, and um, I'm coming around and advocating a pure, simpler way of making wine, and that is you know, pissing a couple of people off. So what I find is that my my femaleness is attacked sometimes even more than my words. Uh, dirty play... Yeah, um, it's kind of shocking. It's it's pretty shocking. I am sure that if I were a male, I would not be getting some of the kinds of comments that I get. Well, I think it's because you're honest and you know your stuff, and they can't really uh, rattle your cage. Uh, but it, it's really evident, especially in your book, you inject so much humor. Uh, your own personal experiences, and it, it's, I really enjoyed it very much. And uh, from some of the comments that I've received uh, through social media, uh, many people are excited about your book, and uh, it, it's great that there's actually a humorous um, but very factual and very detailed description of what you can really expect from this industry, especially if you're going about it yourself. Um, now, on that note, can you explain the, the actual difference between what natural wine is as opposed to organic wine? I mean, there's so much, so many people think that they're both the same or, you know, you need to do something particularly uh, different. I mean, there's just so much misinformation out there. Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of misinformation out there. Organic wine. Um, organic wine in this country, a hundred let's say it this way, 100% organic great wine uh, because 100% will have 100% organic grapes. Organic wine will have 95% organic grapes. Made with organic grapes has to have at least 70%. So there's a lot of different 
um, variations on the theme. But the important part for organic wine is the sulfur issue. will not have added sulfur. However, as far as the wine, you can add anything else to it as long as it's an organic product, like organic external yeast or organic bacteria. And you can do put it through any kind of process. So you can put it through for reverse osmosis. Let me say that without tripping over it. Reverse <laughs> osmosis very much like if you get um, concentrated uh, or, or reconstituted orange juice, same process, which is pretty awful for winemaking. So you can make a very, very conventional wine out of organic grapes. By dynamic wine is a little bit closer well, it used to be a little bit close to the natural wine process. You used to be able to get a, a biodynamic wine and know that it didn't have anything added, didn't anything, have anything taken away, and it had extremely low sulfur added. But now they've gone through some changes too. So right, and, but um, natural wine is really nothing added, nothing taken away, at least as the guiding philosophy, and most importantly, it's starts with land that is not chemically treated, however you approach that. Yeah. Uh, the the land especially, uh, one thing that I've learned is that wine is very dependent upon not only the actual um, growing conditions, but the climate as well as uh, anything else that can actually affect the growth of the plant and especially the production of the fruit. And it, it's just a very delicate growth process. And, uh, you know, some years they have great years, some years they don't. Uh, but it's it's just interesting to see all the different things that are done, um, especially to the one that are not necessarily needed. Uh, uh, one question that I had was in regards to the use of yeast. Mm-hmm. Why do they use yeast? And, I mean... If you were talking about a whole um, harvest of, of grapes and if this is your method of generating revenue for your family, uh, if they take a chance and try to do things naturally, uh, isn't it, I mean, what are your thoughts on just doing things without any yeast, without any anything, as opposed to trying to create some type of stability? Well, if that's even possible. Well, yeah, of course it is. This is really no different than the way wine was made quite usually until really not too long ago. And wine has been made naturally for thousands of years. Now, on a commercial level, really, yeah, you know, like most of the celebrated wines that are sold at auction are probably very naturally made. Bordeaux used to make a naturally made wine. So it's um, if you're dealing with high volume, if you're dealing with, a, I don't know, like a supermarket brand, you need to have a standardized process of making wine. If you're really talking about just whether your wine is going to take off, I mean, it's really not a risk. I, I've yet to meet the winemaker who works this way. He views it any risk at all. Nature will take over. All you've got to do is watch over it. So... I actually don't even know what to say. That technology is there if you run into a difficulty problem. So if you get a stuck fermentation there or you're in danger of it, you can add yeast at that point. You don't have to do it at the beginning. Because what you're doing when you add yeast is you're really compromising the flavor and the complexity and the life. It isn't just about the ingredients and about how natural for natural sake, but it's, it's about how good your wine is going to be. Thank you. And in regards to issues with stems in the wine, um, I thought it was very interesting that there are some winemakers that remove them and others that uh, leave a certain portion in. Can you explain why that is such a problem for winemakers? Yeah, sure. Um, There's this fantasy that stems need to be very, very ripe in order to, like, to use in the fermentation to put the whole grape in. But fear that that is debated, um, that with green stems you get green flavors, and of course we like ripe, 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 ripe. But there's an- another thing, using stems 
make a wine a little bit less brilliant in color. They also add another flavor component. They add a little bit more of a spice to a wine, um, a lot more structure, some more tannin. So sometimes it's just a, a flavor decision. And even amongst natural winemakers, there are decisions to make. Do you like the taste of stems or not? Add them or not? But also on a more economic level, and I did discuss this at great length in my previous book, The Battle for Wine and Love, that it's economic because if you take the stems out, you can put more grapes in the vat so you can get more wine in. Hmm. That's an interesting point. Um, now, you also mention in your book uh, during your winemaking quest that um, you were going to make, and I hope I say this correctly, a Sagrantino exactly. in sure. California. Yep. Uh, can you explain for the layman such as myself what significance the Sagrantino wine is um, and why was it so challenging to make it in California? I mean, um, you talk about how you've brought some bottles of it so that they could taste it and then, I guess, um, try to get as close to the flavor as possible. Um, for someone that is not uh, an experienced winemaker, why is that so challenging? Well, it wasn't really, well, actually, there are some challenges to the specific grape, but it just was extremely rare. There's hardly any of it in California. And having visited Montefalco, which is its, its birthplace, its home, its identity in, in Umbria, I had been familiar with it. I like the wine very much. It's a challenging grape because it has very high tannin. And so in that way, it is um, natural tannin, I might add. Mm. So um, in that way, it's slightly unfamiliar flavor for a lot of Californians. And it also, it, we just didn't know how it was going to react in California. So, so that's all. I mean, a grape is a grape. You throw it in, you mash it up, you wait for fermentation. But um, it wasn't really that it was challenging. It was just different. And while I wanted to make wine, that wine with stems, I was knocked down because people were afraid that it would have too much tannin anyway. And ultimately, it wasn't my own wine. I wasn't, you know, going home with it. I was just making it for someone else. What did you appreciate the most about your whole winemaking experience that you never thought you would have learned? Well, on a very visceral level, and I have to say, it was absolutely thrilling to get into that vat twice a day until the end of fermentation and jump in and to feel each day the difference in the temperature and to, um, as from extremely, extremely, extremely cold at the beginning to finally when it started warming up a bit, which meant fermentation started happening. So it, it was just a thrilling experience to have that kind of sensual uh, connection to my wine. The other thing that I found rather shocking since I was making it in a conventional winery that I got to see up close and personal just how manipul how manipulative most winemakers are in California. Or you know, I I saw a lot and heard a lot, and it was incredibly interesting being behind the scenes, watching some winemakers look through the catalogs and decide what kind of tricks they want to order based on the promises in the catalog. Like this yeast will give you that flavor, and this enzyme will you know, give you that color, that kind of thing. To see that it really wasn't a myth, that it was really the way most of California works. So in essence, winemaking, which for the most part most people think that it's it's an art, it really has become more of a true industry where there's so many tricks to the trade. It's uh, It's about how much can you produce from the grapes that you have in the space of time that you have. Yes, there's that, but also for, you know, going on the same line of thinking, as you were saying, with the industry, and is that now most of the wine out on the shelves are market-driven. It's not 
predicated by what nature gives, but predicated by what the marketer thinks that people want. So they will go to the winemaker and they will say, we want to create this kind of wine with this kind of profile because this is what the consumer wants. When you're making wine from the outside in, in that way, you're going to be buying all these products, you know, very much like, you know, body shapers, <laughs> you mm. know, and will make wine towards that way. But, you know, as to, um, to quote a now departed winemaker who I adored dearly from Italy, said that the more there is fake, the more there is need for real. So even though there's industry, there's a whole other world of winemakers coming up who are doing fabulous things. That's a really great quote. Do you remember who said or can you Yes, that was Teobaldo Capolano in the region of Barolo. And he was one of these mythical, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful men. He was a quote a second. <laughs> wow. That's you know, something that's a really, really um great uh a great uh saying for anybody that's anybody. in this industry, exactly. really, uh, whether it's the wine industry or uh, just anybody who really cares about their food. Yeah, yeah it, it's that's really way ahead of uh, his time. Yeah. Now, on that note about the whole winemaking process and how you see the whole natural, quote-unquote natural, wine movement, um where has it been, and where do you see it going? Well, where, where has it been? Well, it's been in hiding, sort of. <laughs> well, not hiding. It's been there hiding in plain sight with just, you know, nobody calling it Van Naturel or Natural Wine Movement, just calling it real wine or wine without stuff in it, you know, authentic wine. But like any movement, it gets a name, it gets a label because people write about it and well, what do we call these wines and how do we find them? So what is happening right now is that we're almost on the verge where the demand is greater than the supply. It seems that even though there are these marketers out there telling wineries, you know, the consumer wants a big fruit forward wine with a similarity towards cherry cola, there's a lot of other people, the consumers are saying, no, we want a wine that will surprise me, you know, that will show a vintage that has personality. So that is definitely what's going on, and it's creeping out of France. It's now taken hold in Italy. There's a great group of people working this way in Spain. There are about 10 or 12 or 13 people in California. Uh, it is now a worldwide phenomenon. But one thing that that's amongst wine drinkers, what I can't quite figure out, maybe you can help me, is why has there been such a long split with the person more interested in food or the person who goes food first? Because wine we're also taking into our body. And there seems to be a resistance to understanding that Wine can be a natural, wholesome product that gives great enjoyment just the way food can, as opposed to just being a beverage with a lot of garbage in it. And it seems like a lot of people just haven't accepted that. Well, I think, uh, and once again, I uh, would never profess to having even remotely a fraction of the knowledge that you possess. I can only speak from my own upbringing and my own knowledge. Uh, I was raised to treat wine and all alcohol as something that complemented your food. It was not something that you would have um, uh, because you wanted to get drunk or you wanted to, you know, something significant. You know, wine was at the table because it was part of the meal. And when you treat wine as food, you have a different feeling about it. It's not something where you're just looking for something to fit the bill. You're actually looking at the wine, how it complements your food. Mm -hmm. So you really do pay attention to the type of wine that you are going to serve with the meal and how it's going to bring out the other flavors. And I can only speak for myself, but I think if more people were, were treating wine as 
a part of the meal and as an essential part uh, or as food uh, instead of some type of beverage, if you will. Um, I don't. I would never consider wine to be a beverage. Um, I just it, it it's it's too personal for me. Mm-hmm. And I think also the fact that most people don't even pay attention to the food that they eat unless you have some sort of health issue or you just happen to really have a very um, sensitive palate or a very well-developed palate, you're not going to appreciate something that has really been produced with a lot of love and a lot of care and a lot of thought for that matter. And I think that's the difference. But there are many people that are saying, you know, something, we want our food to be high quality because when a conscious consumer makes a choice to buy something that is wholesome, is grown without pesticides, is not genetically modified, and then they choose to complement their food with a, um, a wine that will bring out the flavors and make the meal more enjoyable as opposed to just something that you hoof down just because you need to eat something for nourishment purposes and it's something where you can actually enjoy what you're eating. Uh, and I think more and more people, especially in the organic industry, understand that. And you can see it in their faces when they, it doesn't matter what they're consuming, but when someone eats something or drinks something that's really good, just the smile on their face or just, you know, the reaction, it's like, oh, wow, this stuff tastes fantastic. Or just, you know, oh, you, you've got to try this. I mean, just the way that people react. And with the process, uh, what I refer to as non-organic non-food, you don't get that. It's like, yeah, well, you know what, it's something that I got, and, uh, yeah, I've got a stomachache from it, but uh, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And that's basically the reaction. But when it comes to wine, it's interesting that the marketers are telling the winemakers what consumers want, uh, and it's it's predicated on all sorts of processed food that that people are buying. I think if they really uh reached out towards the people who are making the decisions that are that are spending the money on quality wine, they would find a different uh just a difference in what the consumer wants. I think they they certainly they certainly would. And you know there's but when you go for what what are marketers looking for? They're looking for the greatest number of people. And that means that they're looking for the person who does probably not eat the way you and I eat, mm. probably does eat a lot of fast food, probably does eat a lot of junk. And that's, that's kind of a mass palette until that changes. But you're right, to put a really good... I don't. I won't even go for something as obvious as a wonderful tomato. You put a really beautiful potato in front of somebody that has flavor, as opposed to some, you know, like GM-modified, um, you know, GM with transgenic potato, <laughs> no flavor, and all of a sudden they go, wow, you know, they forget, they forget that food is beyond salt and fat that cover up flavors but it actually is robust and complex. And that's, it's, it's very true. And especially when it comes to learning about wine, um, I think the marketers have been very successful in, I, I guess, trying to entice consumers into thinking that if something has a funky-looking label or something that's humorous, uh, I really do think that they spend quite a bit making these labels as attractive as possible as opposed to spending the money into making a finer product. And I kind of I, I see that especially with um not just wine but with other types of food where you'll get a flashy label and they're trying to really appeal to new customers but the conscious consumer is going to take a look at it and they're going to read the label as uh uh you know, all people should. And when you pay attention to something where it's grown, how it's produced, and what's involved with the whole process, it does make a huge difference. Uh, it, it does make a huge difference. And you know, you can have 
the thing is that you can you can have a poorly designed label and a well designed label and it almost costs the same thing. <laughs> but mm. I think that the amount of research that some of these people put into getting exactly the right label is is a little bit silly and of course but those people are not interested. Of course they're putting it into label and advertising because they're not interested in a wholesome product on the inside. Exactly. They're just concerned about what's the bottom the bottom yeah. line yeah. when it comes to the company. Yeah. Now, when you go to or when you say if you're traveling to a particular wine region, is there anything that you take with you for your tasting or do they automatically say, "Oh, she's here" and do they have um a particular selection for you to uh taste the wine with or how do you go about wine tasting? Okay. Um that is easy enough. I I how do I go about? I usually start by seeing the vineyards because I'm not interested in tasting the wine without seeing where it comes from. Then, so usually after tracing around the vineyards, we go back, and I would have either requested certain kinds of wines that I'm interested in, sometimes with different vintages, or I'll just see their new vintage. So we usually walk around in the barrel room and taste the vintage that's not quite in the bottle yet. Mm-hmm. So that's we're walking around um, glass in hand. What do you look for when you're at the vineyards on the property? What what are some things that the average consumer would not know to look for when they're visiting a vineyard, but that you look for? Well, what I look for, and this is giving away trade secrets, and hopefully they're... Oh, sorry. (laughs) No, that's fine. It's just like um, I am a bit of a snoop, you know, and I'm a bit of a cynic. I'm 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 a wine writer, and I don't believe everything people tell me. So I want to see the way people work. I'm looking for whether they've used people who tell me that they're organic and I go out there and I see that they're not. I look for the the soil, the soil health. I look for, this is going to sound really obsessive, I want to see whether they've ever used Roundup, whether they're still using Roundup, that thing that people always say, oh, I'm organic except for Roundup, which is the weed killer. <laughs> uh, and, oh, it, it you know, doesn't doesn't do the you know, plant any harm and it's just very specific. Well, let me tell you, you can see... I mean, talk about you really see. Have you heard? You've heard of the superweed phenomenon, right? Oh, of course. So you go in there, and I, I was in the Jura with with this wonderful winemaker, and he's been working biodynamically for several years. And the weeds underneath is just amazing. He said, "Yes, it's just they just keep on coming back because the, it had been farmed conventionally before." So, but in his vineyard, I can totally see he is. Absolutely organic, biodynamic, but I see the history. I also see the care um, that they've taken, how they, if it is in summer, how they just how they work the leaves, how they work the photosynthesis, whether they do the work by hand, whether they do it by machine, that, that kind of thing. And also, you can really get a sense of love for the land. And so I look for the emotional connection that the winemaker has with their land. That makes a big difference. And I also look at the soil. So I want to see what the terroir is like. Are there rocks? Um, what, are there, what kind of rocks are they? And all of this is information gathering for the kind of wine that they're making. I also look for the age of the vines and whether there are, whether they're from laboratory clones. They're usually really very skinny little vines in that case. Or whether they were propagated from their own plant material. And then I go in. So that's um, any other questions? I know I was rattling on. To no, no, no. My oh. audience absolutely loves um, to hear all these little okay, uh, <laughs> details because the thing is, is that somebody such as myself, who is not a wine expert, looks to someone such as you uh, for. The reasons as far as why you are particularly fond of an organic wine and what makes it appealing to you, and the same reason that when people ask me, well, what do you think of this particular organic product, um, I do the same thing that you do. I, I look at every single thing from how the food is grown, the soil, you name it, and uh, every little bit Every little step in the process, rather, really makes a difference. And there's so many things that you just mentioned 
that the average person would not think to even look for. And this is the difference between someone who really knows what they're talking about and someone who, uh, you know, just said, oh, you know what, I've had a couple of uh, cases of wine, I've, uh, you know, now I'm an expert and this and that and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, well, long way to go before they become you, obviously. Yeah, um, it was very funny. When I started spending time in the vineyards, my whole relationship to wine changed, totally changed. When I looked at the winemaker's rhythm and saw, I mean, other decisions, when do you prune, what time of year do you prune, I, I don't only look to gather information, but I, or just you know, to see whether they're lying. But I, I go to learn. I learn a lot with every every visit. How why somebody plows, why somebody just uses cover crop, and all all of this adds to my own knowledge. But usually, I must say that most of my visits start because I taste a wine that I love. When I taste a wine that I love, I have to go and visit. I just have to see where it comes from. I have to understand. It's like, you know, I just have to understand. So all those little decisions that the person makes in the winery helps me understand what was in the bottle. Well, really, I really think that it also helps you to appreciate everything that uh, that particular winemaker has gone through, especially when it comes to horticulture. Uh, when you're growing grapes, it's not... It's not something so simple where you could just get some grapes from a catalog or a nursery, put them in the ground, and then they grow, you pick them, you make wine, boom, you're done. It's not so simple. Uh, many people that are out in the audience have a vast knowledge and understanding of horticulture in many different uh, areas within horticulture, and they appreciate all that uh, is involved with growing grapes and just the whole process and everything that you just described really does make a difference, especially since the wine is strictly dependent upon the in, the actual environment. Uh, anything that has to do with the soil, whether it's the temperature, the air quality, especially the water quality, uh, there's so many different elements that are intertwined that really do make a huge difference. And it's interesting that you bring up pruning because that's not something that uh, I, I would have expected to hear, and that makes perfect sense. I mean, somebody who's growing grapes, um, I would expect to hear about, um, you know, uh, plant propagation, plant maintenance, uh, fertilization, uh, irrigation, and so on and so forth. But from someone that's in your position, uh, that just lends itself to a whole different understanding of the things that you look for and what really makes the difference in the quality of the end product. Actually, and you brought up one other thing in, in your list that I forgot to mention, and one thing that I do look for is irrigation because it is one of the most abused uh, tools in a vineyard. In fact, uh, most often not needed incredible waste of resource and it does not necessarily make for the best wine. Interesting. Now, you're actually, um, after you visit the vineyards and you observe the actual process, uh, can you just share, what you, not everything that you look for, but when they're actually going through the grape making process, are there any things that you look for in particular? Uh, that maybe, you know, when people are visiting the uh, wineries uh, in, in the different regions, uh, whether they're here in the United States or abroad, uh, just some of the things that they can look for, just out of curiosity, to say, oh, yeah, you know something? Um, Alice talked about that, and how about that? They do this or they don't do this. Well, actually, talking about irrigation, that's an easy one. Like, obviously, like most people aren't going to have my access to go into the barrel room and taste out of barrel with the winemaker. Most people are going into a tasting room with somebody who maybe doesn't know too much about wine. But if they do get somebody that knows about wine, and say it's a region like Oregon, like around the Willamette, or even Long Island that has quite a bit of rain, and you might ask about irrigation and ask, well, why do you think you, why is irrigation needed? You only need, you know, like 15 inches a year of rain to work without irrigation. And Santorini only has two inches of 
and they don't use irrigation. So that's mm. one thing. The other thing that you can ask is, is your um, how much control do you? Let's see. What's a nice positive way? <laughs> what, what kind of um, what kind of fermentations do you do? Do you inoculate or is it native? You can ask questions like that. Um, you can say, what is, you know, everybody's going to say, everybody in the world is going to say, our wine is made in the vineyard. And you can say, well, that's really great. Thank you very much. I don't know of any wine that's not made in the vineyard, <laughs> but can you tell me what you actually do in the winery? I'd love to know. Um, so you can do what I do poorly, which is just ask a, a question <laughs> and not assuming an answer and and see what people say. And another thing you might say is I'd love to compare vintages. You have another vintage. You can learn a lot by that and ask them for the vintage variation. And if you don't taste that vintage variation, ask them what they did to correct it. <laughs> That is really clever. I I will remember that, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, You've given me some great ideas, um, and I will admit that, uh, like you, I also um, struggle with that when I'm talking to a company. uh, I don't want to hurt their feelings, but the bottom line is that they can get more out of me and my endorsement than uh, I'm going to get from them. And I'm just very particular, and uh, obviously trying to be as polite as possible is not always the case, especially if something tastes really um, awful, yeah. uh, to put it nicely. Yeah, it, it hurts sometimes <laughs> to have to. And I try to be, I try to just talk about the good stuff, and when I talk about some of the bad stuff, I try not to name names, unless it's just so, unless it's such an abuse of the truth. And then I feel, given my position in the natural wine world, I kind of like have to Mm. look to me for that kind of thing. Well, thank goodness for people such as yourself, because uh, without people like you that really go the distance and are not afraid to ask the hard questions and understand every single aspect of what is involved with winemaking and just growing the grapes, just everything that there is that's involved with the whole process to produce that one perfect glass of wine, uh, you know, what would we do without people such as yourself? I mean, you basically set the standard that the companies really need to follow, not the marketers. And I think the message here is that when people look to the experts that really know what they're talking about, instead of some flashy ad or some clever marketing spiel that's uh, coming from some ad agency, you get more satisfaction not only with your purchase, but with the one that you're about to enjoy. And uh, like the Italians say, to eat well is to live well. And I think that's a very big message, especially with the organic community, uh, where the people really truly get it. Now, um, are you going to be uh, lecturing? Are you? Do you have any book signings that you'd like to share with our audience? Let's see. Um, there will be if they can. There will be a couple of things coming up uh, in the next month and a half in New York City. But people should check my blog, Alice. Firing.com, A-L-I-C-E-F-E-I-R-I-N-G.com. For those, will be one coming up at Discovery Wines. Also, next week on Tuesday, I will be talking about, let me just get, let's see. Um, that's October 4th. That'll be up on my, my blog as well, but there will be something about local versus global, the Casey debate going to happen on October 4th, and I'm going to be talking about some of the dangers of drinking local and um, or some of the pleasures of drinking local, and somebody will be there speaking about the carbon footprint, and I'm going to be talking about the sensual pleasure of it all. That will be, you can find out about that, NewYorkWineSalon.com or my blog. And that is one lecture that any wine connoisseur definitely will not want to miss 
And uh, folks, once again, that if you're in the New York City area, that is this coming Tuesday, October 4th, I do believe. Absolutely. And uh, Alice, I absolutely loved your book. Um, it will be definitely on my Christmas list this year for my friends that are, are that are um, self-declared wine connoisseurs. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and it, I just enjoyed everything that you shared with with me and with everybody that reads the book. Uh, it was just so much fun to read it and just learn from your perspective, especially from one who truly is an expert. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And, folks, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been June Sawyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.